0: All right, I get to preach hard at you today. I want to talk about a baseline reality of what needs to happen if our churches are going to be healthy and if this movement of ours is going to be successful. There's a hundred things on that list. One of them is this. You and I personally need to continue to be floored by the gospel, to continue to be floored by the gospel. Uh, Luke 7 is our text. I'm going to walk through it up here. That's why I dragged this TV all the way from Melrose. Would you just get your, ready, your hearts ready to just receive in this sacred time that we have together? Let's do that. Father, I pray that the words of Scripture would be the clarion call this morning, the only thing that's remembered, that we would respond right to your truth, that you would subjectively press these words to change us, If you took just the people in this room and helped us to see rightly the gospel of Jesus, everything would change. So I pray that nobody in here would miss you this morning. Let your grace abound to us. That's our prayer. Would you hear and answer? Amen. Amen. All right, I'm just going to walk through the text of Luke 7. I'll put it up here. If you want to do that, you can. And I'm clicking up here. Um, It's a story with a parable in the middle. So let's set the story, and then I'll hit you with the parable. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. Okay, Pharisee. This is a big Bible word that you may never have heard of before. It may sound strange to you. It's very important that you understand what's underneath this word, because this isn't just an ancient word. There are Pharisees in our cities. There are Pharisees in our churches. A Pharisee is what you and I would call a really good person. If you grew up in West Lynn, like Joe, you would say a wicked good person. This is someone who is well behaved and highly functional and socially adept. They are cleaned up and buttoned down and put together. This was the crew that was meticulous about observance to even the minutia of the law of God. They never committed the big sins, never. They had no skeletons in their closet. I don't know what's in your closet, old clothes that doesn't fit, baseball cards, maybe a bowling ball that you don't use anymore. In their closet, there was all of that junk. But there was no big sins in that closet, not for a Pharisee. They never would have gotten anyone pregnant. They never would have smoked weed in high school. They never, ever would have been arrested. They wouldn't even have racked up any credit card debt. That's a Pharisee. They did not use curse words. They did not listen to, now fill in the blank for what you think is bad music, disco, rap, country, James Taylor would have been edgy for a Pharisee. Do I have you yet? They would have been members in very good standing in their local church. As far as the eye could see, you would say that a Pharisee was a good, decent, respectable person, and, very important here, they would have said so too. They would have said so too. So put together and proud about it, That's a Pharisee. One of them invites Jesus to his home for a meal. Okay. It's a man named Simon, and he invites Jesus over. Simon and some of his Pharisee friends and Jesus. That's the whole invitation list. No one else is invited. Then we read this. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... Okay, pause with me right there. Whenever you see the word behold in your Bible, whenever, a psalm, a letter, a story, it's supposed to shake you and and have you go, whoa, something huge and unexpected is about to happen. Behold, don't miss this. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Okay, you got to feel this. Into this respectable dinner party that's what this was, walks this unclean, Dirty, tatted up, probably some purple streaks in her hair, train wreck of a sinner. That's who just walked into this room. This is the anti-Pharisee that just showed up in your story right here. Now, we've got our elementary school kids with us, so I'll let you fill in the blanks. Woman of the city means what? So I don't have to say it because you know what the answer is. This is someone whose life for years has been episode after episode after episode after episode of awful, illicit, unclean, dirty actions with men that she should not be with. That's a woman of the city. And she was a sinner. Now for a Bostonian crowd with a secular background, many of us, we trip over that phrase right there but you can't trip over it if you're going to feel the weight of this story. We would say there are no sexual sinners anymore in in our world. We would be offended that you tie the word sinner to this woman's life and story. Okay, feel this with me. We would say that her trade is just being plied among consenting adults. How dare you say that there's sin involved with this? then we take it a step further and we would say she should be allowed to earn her living however she chooses with no judgment from anyone in our culture. And then you know that we even take it a step further and we would begin to applaud this woman for her boldness in taking ownership for her body and deciding on her own destiny regardless of anyone else's convictions. You would never say that a woman of the city is a sinner. If anything, you would say she's a victim of sin, and you would be right, and you would point to fathers, brothers, uncles, coaches, pastors, pimps, whoever was involved in her life that led her here, and you would say they sinned, but there's no sin in her. The problem is that she knew better than that. She knew who she was. She knew what she has done. She knows her sin. So even if you don't agree with it this morning, you need to feel it from her point of view. And so, when the Pharisee... Oh, sorry, did I click too fast? Oh, I messed you up. My bad. When she heard that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster... Flask of ointment. Okay, pause with me right here. At some point in the previous weeks or months, this woman had an encounter with Jesus. We don't know if it was face to face, personal, like this close, like the woman at the well that Jesus talked with, and like a good surgeon, he pressed into the sin that was killing her, and he called her out on it, and then he called her out from it. That might have happened with this woman. Maybe she was just sitting in a crowd on a hill like you are in a pew right now, and she heard this Jesus guy talking about the kingdom of God in which the broken and poor and ugly and weak and feeble were welcomed and blessed. And she heard that gospel news and she believed it. Something happened between this woman and Jesus that her life was changed And now she hears that Jesus is back in her city or near her city and he's actually having dinner at somebody's house and what does she do? She writes down the address or she Googles the map and she runs to this house and she kicks the back door in and she interrupts Simon's fancy pants dinner party and here's what she does. Standing behind Jesus at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with the hair of her head. And She kissed his feet, and she anointed them with the ointment. This is what it looks like to be floored by the gospel. In this case, literally floored. You know how tables worked in Jesus' day? There was no chairs, right? There was no Ikea or Ethan Allen, depending what kind of furniture shopper you are, or Costco when they have a sale. No chairs. Very low tables. Sit on your elbow to eat. And you'd take your feet and you'd kick them away from the table. And so this woman throws herself on the floor at Jesus' feet. And she begins to love and to honor and to worship him. Does everyone in here feel the scandal in this verse? Simon not only wouldn't have allowed this woman in his home, he wouldn't even have walked on the same side of the street with her. This is me and Joey downtown, and we see a Lakers fan coming, and we just make our way over here. Because we're not, we're not dealing with that guy right there. And now she is in his home. Do you feel the scandal? Do you feel the devotion? Tears. Her hair. Her lips. Her ointment. Do you feel the devotion to Jesus in here? She is displaying unashamed, public, physical affections for Christ. Just think what it would have felt like for a woman like this to do that. You have to feel the devotion. Do you feel the redemption in this text? What were the tools of this woman's perverse trade? What were the means of her sinning? It was her lips, right? It was her eyes. She put in those light blue contacts. It was her hair. It was her perfumes. What has the grace of Jesus done in this woman's life? Redeem those things. He's purified them. He has repurposed them for holiness and for worship and for humility and for purity. These eyes that used to wink and seduce are now weeping over the person of Christ. Do Do you see it? This hair that she used to let down to attract her suitors is now washing the feet of Christ. These perfumes that used to fill that room with the scent of lust and immorality now fills this room with the fragrance of grace. Do you feel the redemption in this scene? This is what it looks like when someone has been floored by the grace of Jesus, There's a change that happens, and it's beautiful. Okay, Simon the Pharisee sees this, and what does he say? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, okay, time out right there. How should he have responded? How should he have responded right now? He should have applauded. He should have cheered. He should have been affirming her encouraging her. If any of his buddies had come to say, hey, get out of here, you filthy, he should have said, don't you dare, don't you dare touch this woman. Let her be. Give her as long as she needs. This is right and good, and it's amazing that the Lord has chosen my home to show this kind of a thing off. That's supposed to be his response to her. But that's not what you get. Instead, this is what you get. He says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Do you feel the judgment in these words? Who's he judging? He's judging the woman. The man is so blind that he cannot see what everybody in this room can already see. Wait, wait, she was a sinner, but no more. He can't see it. Who else is he judging? He's judging Jesus. He cannot see what everyone else in the room can clearly say, can clearly see that Jesus saves sinners. He can't see it. And so he started out this dinner party equal with Jesus, sitting across from him as a peer. And now what is he moving to do? Now he's looking down at Jesus and he's shaking his head. This guy is no prophet. Completely misunderstands the nature of the gospel. This scene does not call the character or the office of Christ into question. It, It shows it off. Jesus came to win sinners to himself and He has done it with this woman. Jesus answers him. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Okay, here comes our parable. And I know that you guys are walking through parables at Restoration Road. If you never heard the Bible word parable, this is a short story. It was a teaching tool that Jesus used. We say it's a story with very sharp edges. Sometimes we think of parables like Aesop's fables or like a fortune cookie at Kowloon, and you just read it real fast and you shrug your shoulders and go, ah, that was cool, and then you go on about your life. It lasts about two seconds in your consciousness. That's not what a parable is. A parable is a story that is meant to stop you in your tracks. Parables are like a UFC heavyweight in the octagon hitting you right between the eyes or the chest. Boom, you feel that. Parables are like a pole on the street and you're chit-chatting with your buddy and then you walk into that thing and the whole world stops and spins. That's the effect that a parable's supposed to have on you. Have you ever gone to the movies? I got tweens and teens in my home, so we went to see Captain America. Oh man, I'm forgetting the name of it now. I was going to say Revolutionary Road, but I'm thinking because we're here. What was it? Civil War. All right. See, Natalie's a movie girl. You ever been in the movie for two and a half hours? It's like four hours now with the previews, right? Just, I'm older since I started this movie. And then you walk outside and your eyes go explosion because of the brightness of the sun. That's a parable. It's, it's totally changing the horizon of your world because it's bringing you face to face with the kingdom of heaven. Not this world with gospel truth, not the lies that we are used to being told. So I need you to feel Jesus unloading gospel truth on Simon. Here's the parable. It's probably the shortest one you guys will do in your series. This is the whole parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. One of them owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which one of them will love him more? Okay, let this parable rock you. Feel the juxtaposition. Person A has a ton of debt. So much debt that they're never, ever crawling out of it. This is 500 lifetimes. Never crawling out of it. But feel person B. They got some debt, but it ain't so bad A little bit of discipline, give me a little bit of time, give me some extra shifts I can pick up at Winchester Hospital with Jess, and I'll make enough money, and I can crawl out of this if I have to by myself. Do you feel the difference? The first person knows intuitively, without grace in this story, it's completely over for me. There's no happy ending. They're going to be floored that their debt has been paid. The second person appreciates the grace, but they feel like they could have made it on their own if they had to. So it's like, thank you so much, Mr. Money Lender, for speeding up the process, but let's not over-exaggerate things here. I I could have got somewhere on my own. Which one of these two will love the money lender more? Love him more. Here's Simon's answer. It's disgusting. Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Please tell me you feel the wickedness of Simon's heart in this answer. It's wrapped up in these two words I suppose. You are educated Bostonians, so you know this trick from the classroom, right? This isn't about me. It's about someone else. I suppose, technically, well, if I had to say, one would venture. Do you feel what Simon is doing right here? He is distancing himself from his sin. Does everybody feel that? I'm a third person in this conversation. But Jesus loves him too much to let that happen. And so now Jesus goes in for the kill. And I mean the good kind of Holy Spirit kill when he slays you that he might raise you. And he does it, he always does it by making it clear to you and me and Simon the actual depth, seriousness of our sin. Turning to the woman, Jesus Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. You feel the grace and the patience with Jesus here? He's continuing the conversation. And now Jesus presses in. Turning to the woman. So he pivots and here she is. Where is she? She's on the floor. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus is not playing games anymore. He's not telling stories. It's go time. He points to this woman and he says, Simon. Look at her. Look at her. Who's the last person in the room that Simon wants to look at right now? This dirty woman of the city. He doesn't even want to look. And what does Jesus say? Look at her. You have to look at her. And then he asks this question. Do you see this woman? Now up to this point in the story, what's the answer to that question? Does Simon really see this woman yet? He still doesn't see her. He's so full of pride and vanity, and he's so huge in his own eyes that he takes up the entire screen of his life. His ego has been so inflated that he can't see anyone else, and so he can't see anything rightly. Is that not a fair description of you and me and every Bostonian? I'm just so big in my own eyes. I can't even see anything else. Jesus says, You have to look at this woman or you're dead. Look at her. Feel the authority of Jesus. And then back to back to back, Jesus brings us home. He says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. And she's wiped them with her hair. Okay, it's 4th of July weekend. It's 83 degrees outside. Forgive me for reminding you of winter, but just give me three minutes. Okay. As a good Bostonian neighbor, what do you do when your friend comes over on a 19-degree night and there's a bunch of black slush on the ground? What is common decency and, and loving hospitality? What do you do? You find a place for their boots, You take their coat, you throw them on the bed in your room, you offer them something warm to drink. I'm not a coffee guy, so what is it? Cappuccino or espresso or tea or hot chocolate. If you've got a fire, you say, hey, come sit by the fire. It's just common basic decency, right? What was the most basic act of hospitality in the ancient world? What was it? You would wash your guests' feet. No pavement on the streets. No Honda Accords. You were walking wherever you went. The streets were filthy. Your feet would be filthy. Common decency says that you bring your guest some water. But Simon was so not floored by the person or the presence of Jesus. He doesn't even bring him a cup of water. But this woman washes his feet with her tears and her lips. Jesus says, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in here, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Okay, what is your common decency, basic physical approach to someone who's coming to visit your house? I know we're all different, so what's your answer? Even somebody like that you disliked. At least you would do what? Is it a handshake? For me, it's a high five. I I go high five on people and they kind of back up sometimes. Our little kids love the fist bump. If it's someone that you adore, how do you greet them? Bear hug, embrace. What was the most basic, simple, decent, hospitable greeting in the ancient world? What is it? It's the kiss, right? It's just a simple. Sign of respect and affection. Simon was so unfloored by the person and the presence of Jesus, he didn't even shake his hand at the door. He didn't even give him just didn't even give him a kiss. But this woman, she's down on the ground by his feet, embracing his dirty feet. Did not cease means this got embarrassing. This got awkward. How long is she going to, how many times is she going to run a circle around his feet with her lips? Physical affection for Jesus. Have you ever had someone so happy to see you that they don't let go and you're like, okay, I get it, it's okay now? That's this. And then the last one, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. If you had somebody coming over your house who you really were pumped that they were going to be there, you were excited that they were coming, do you go with Hot Pockets or Prime Rib? Hawaiian Punch or red wine? Which is it? Do you use the paper plates? Or do you get as china from the basement cabinet? Simon won't even sacrifice an ounce of his ointment. Not an ounce. But what does the woman do? She breaks an entire flask of ointment and perfume, extravagantly wastes it all on the feet of Jesus. At this point in our story, whose mouth has been shut, Simon has nothing now to say. And so Jesus finishes this for us. And Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Okay, two things on this. One, this word for in here is not communicating the cause of her forgiveness, but the evidence of it. Jesus is not saying that because she loved me a lot, Therefore, I have chosen now to forgive her sins. That's not the connection here. That would mean that her works earned her salvation, and the gospel story is about grace and not works. What this is saying is, here's how you know somebody's been forgiven. They really love Jesus. For today's big idea, we would say it like this. The evidence that this woman had Christ and all of his benefits was she was floored by the gospel. And then, second thing, the point of this parable, this story, is not if you're a really, really bad sinner in the room, then you should really love Jesus. But if you're a pretty good person already, eh, not so much. That's not the point of this. Jesus' point with the parable is there is no one, there is no one who is not this deep in their sin. 50 million light years away from the glory and the holiness of God. There is no one in that category. There is no such thing as, well, you might have owed 500 denarii, but me it was only like six. So... There is no, I can pretty much stand on my two feet before God. Everybody, Simon included, has been broken bad. We all got a debt that could never, ever, never, ever, never be paid. And so, none of us can stand on our two feet. The only right response that we have, the only right response is the floor. To just be floored by the grace of God. The mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. Perpetually floored by the gospel. All right? Who are we in the story? Who are you in the story? Here's the problem with asking the question everybody in here, everybody in the world automatically says who? Oh, I would have been the woman. Totally. And if I wouldn't been the woman, I would have been the guy that they don't mention who was also weeping in the back and affirming her action. That would have been me. <laughs> but I want you to really think about this. Because I'm dead and Dan's dead and Joey's dead and we're all dead if our churches have anything else at the center of what we're doing than the story of this woman. So I need you to think about it. Here's how I'll ask you. If you knew that Jesus was going to be in Wakefield or Malden or Melrose at somebody's house, would you even go by? Would it even make it into the schedule of your life to say, wait, Jesus, I got to get over there? Would you even go by? If you did go by, would you kick that door in with the most valuable possession that you have and not even care who was looking and throw yourself at the feet of Jesus to honor and worship and love him? Or would you like sit across the table from him and just throw theological barbs back and forth as if you were peers and equals? Which would you do? What our cities need, what our churches need, is for this place to be filled up with a bunch of people who would kick in the back door and fall on the floor in wonder, in praise, in worship, in awe that this money lender has covered our debt. We need to be perpetually floored by the grace of Jesus.